A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. And once again, before we get into the study, let me just invite you again to come check out our new Standing Firm Bible Study class. It's at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We're meeting now in room 216. You see it there on your screen. In the Family Life Center at 1015 a.m. each Sunday morning. If you'd like directions or some more information, go to AboundingJoy.com. See it there on the screen. Click on Standing Firm Bible Study Class. You can learn more about it. We'd love for you to visit with us this Sunday. Because I think you realize, I hope you realize, we're living in very challenging times for Christians. And we need the kind of encouragement and prayer support we can get in a small group Bible study class. So if you're not already involved in one, if you are, I'm, I'm just encouraging you to stay faithful. But if you're not, would you at least pray about joining us maybe this Sunday? Love to have you. Well, today our study plan calls for us to be in Exodus chapters 19 and 20, but we're not there yet. We're going to begin in chapter 16. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at chapters 19 and 20, and we'll learn there what happened when they first reached Mount Sinai. Pretty exciting stuff. Well, Pharaoh's army has now been drowned in the sea. That's back in chapter 14. We've already looked at that. And the Israelites have celebrated God's destruction of their enemies with great worship and praise. That's in chapter 15. We've looked at that. So now the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, this is how God chose to lead them. Uh, This pillar has begun to lead them toward Mount Sinai. So we're picking it up in chapter 16. It turns out to be exactly one month since they left Egypt, since the day they left. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. 15th day of the second month. So they're one month into the Exodus. They fled Egypt, if you remember, on the very first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the day after Passover. That would have been the 15th day of the first month. Now we're at the 15th day of the second month. By the way, the name of this wilderness, S-I-N, means thorns. (laughs) It's not the same word we see all the way through the Bible that means disobedience. The word usually translated sin, S-I-N, in the Bible means the transgression of God's law. But this is a different word. It's a place name. Some suggest it would have been better if the translators had anglicized it into Z-I-N to keep the confusion down. (laughs) By the way, it also happens to be the first part of the word Sinai. We usually pronounce it Sinai as in the Sinai Peninsula or Mount Sinai. The Hebrew word Sinai is actually pronounced something more similar to Sinai, and it means thorny place. But it turns out that sin, in the way we usually think of the word, is actually a pretty appropriate word for the attitude of the Israelites anyway. They had a battle, didn't they? Verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat at the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. (laughs) It's amazing. Amazing. They remember their time of slavery with fondness. They seem to be suppressing from their memories all the bad stuff. I guess that's kind of human, isn't it? They're just remembering that they had plenty to eat when they were back there in Egypt. And now they seem to be running out of food. (laughs) You may remember they left Egypt with a large amount of livestock. Mixed multitude went up with them. Very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So they had animals with them, livestock with them. By this time, maybe they've already eaten a significant amount of their livestock. I don't know. It's possible. It's easy for us to forget we're talking about 2 million people here, roughly. It's possible some of their livestock may have died under harsh conditions, but anyway, they're getting pretty pessimistic, whatever's going on. They may still have, well, they certainly have some of their livestock with them. Obviously, they wouldn't have wanted to kill all their livestock. They need their livestock, so they need enough to replenish itself. Uh, The fact that they still have livestock is mentioned in chapter 17, verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water. The people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So... They're not, they've not lost all their livestock. 
So the conditions may have been pretty harsh. You know, they're not happy with it. God's not making this a pleasure trip for them by any means. But maybe it's not quite as harsh as sometimes we picture it in our minds. I don't know about you. You may have a different picture, but I tend, when I see the word wilderness, I tend to picture maybe a desert. It's miles and miles, nothing but sand for the most part. But that's probably not accurate. There was certainly grass there for the livestock. In fact, there are other passages in the Bible that tell us that men were pasturing their livestock in the wilderness. So it was a place where they could pasture their sheep and cattle. A little earlier in his life, you may remember Moses was pasturing the flock of his father-in-law Jethro in the wilderness. Same word. So it was unsettled and it was uncultivated, but that doesn't mean there wasn't anything growing there uh, at that particular time. Uh, They wouldn't have found many people there, maybe, maybe no people. But they would have been able to find some firewood because we're told, for example, in Numbers 15 about a man gathering wood when he wasn't supposed to be. And uh, once the tabernacle was constructed, they had to have wood to keep the fires burning on the altar. So there, was, there, was, there were trees there, sources of wood. There's also a clue here in chapter 16, verse 23. In this case, he's talking about the manna. He said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Look at this. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that's left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So he tells us at least some of them were baking and boiling the manna. So that means they had to have fuel for their cooking fires. You remember soon after this, God's going to send quail for them to eat. I don't imagine they ate them raw. They roasted them, I'm sure. So there must have been enough wood around for their cooking fires. So there weren't enough resources here in the wilderness for two million people to live on very long. That's why God had to supernaturally provide food and supernaturally provide water for them. But it wasn't just a total desert. But amazingly, after all their past experiences, they still have not learned to trust the Lord, have they? He's brought them through so much, but they still have trouble just trusting him. When difficulty or uncertain times come for us, Uh, We need to be careful, too, because it's really tempting to remember the past through rose-colored glasses and think things used to be better when maybe they weren't as much better as as our memories want to tell us. That that happens sometimes. That's what they were doing. I think Satan would like for some of us, anyway, depending on your situation, to remember what life was like before Christ, kind of through rose-colored glasses if he can. He'd love for us to regret our decision to follow Christ. Now, anybody that's really got their eyes on Jesus and experiencing the peace of God and the joy of God and and the purpose of God in our lives, we're not going to regret coming to Christ, of course. But if he can, when we're going through the rough times, he would like for us to forget about the downside of the times when we were slaves of his. And he wants us to think about the good old days when he was able to manipulate us more easily than he can now. God wants us to remember what he's brought us through and what he's delivered us from. He doesn't want us to forget that. They shouldn't have forgotten it. We certainly must not forget it either. Near the end of the wilderness wanderings, Moses explains to them what he was doing, what God was doing. He explains it in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Listen, Moses said, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is telling him, look, God had a reason for letting you get hungry. God wanted you to not trust bread. He wanted you to trust the source of your bread, which is God himself. He wanted them to trust God and trust God's promises and trust God's word. It's important for us. You remember Jesus used this verse when he was battling Satan as part of his Warfare against Satan when he was in the wilderness himself. He used this passage of scripture. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. You notice what God called this? He he didn't call it manna. He called it bread from heaven, bread from heaven or bread of heaven. 
When the people see it, down in verse 31, they call it manna. <laughs> Good translation of the word manna would be, what's this? <laughs> that's what they said. They looked at it, what's this? <laughs> and that's what they called it, what's this? Manna. But God doesn't call it that. He calls it bread from heaven. He also refers to it as bread from heaven in Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah is remembering what God did for Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. You gave them bread from heaven. There it is again. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you'd sworn to give them. That's in Nehemiah chapter 9. In the 78th Psalm, he called it the grain of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. So they ask, what is it? And God's already answered, it's bread from heaven. I'm sending you bread from heaven. It will nourish you throughout your wanderings. And, of course, you're ahead of me, I'm sure, it ultimately pictures Jesus, the ultimate bread of heaven, right? The bread of life. He nourishes us in all of our wanderings in the wilderness we're living in right now in this world. And listen, guys, they had to get fresh manna every day. They couldn't accumulate a lot on one day and just kind of store it up enough to last them for days and days and days or weeks and weeks. God didn't let that happen. They had to collect it every day, except they collected enough for two days before the Sabbath. But in the same way, we need nourishment from Jesus, the bread of heaven, every day. We can't get enough if just by going to church on Sunday and hearing a good sermon or a good Bible study and just kind of storing it up and hoping it'll last till next Sunday. <laughs> we need to be living in his word daily. We have to receive spiritual nourishment from him daily. It's the way God's engineered us. He's our maker. He knows what we need. And he, he teaches us this physically, of course. We need physical food daily. I don't think many of us ever skip too many meals, maybe one every now and then. But for the most part, we eat every day, don't we? Well, we need spiritual food every day too, just like we need physical food. And when Jesus was ministering here on earth, he didn't want anyone to miss the fact that this manna that God gave them, this bread of heaven, was pointing to him, to Jesus. So he very deliberately points it out in John chapter 6. And I want us to look at that. <laughs> But let's get prepared. Turns out to be a very tough passage. Listen to what he says in John chapter 6. I'm going to start at verse 48. Let's read a, several of these verses. Jesus said, I am, there's one of those I am passages, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I, Jesus said, am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus gives them this connection. God gave the Israelites manna, bread of heaven. Now think about this. Who can imagine more healthy physical food than bread from heaven, from God himself. We know God certainly would not have given them anything to eat that would have been bad for their bodies. I'm sure it was the most nourishing physical food they had ever eaten, or anybody's ever eaten. Manna from heaven, bread of heaven. And it definitely nourished them. It got them through the wilderness. But eventually, you know what happened to every single one of them, right? Every single one of them died. Even the good guys, you know, Joshua and Caleb eventually died too. So Jesus said in verse 51, I am the heavenly food that you can eat and live forever. I'm better for you than that manna was for them. They ate it and died. You eat my body, my flesh, and you won't die. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? But Jesus didn't let up. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. <laughs> now, now, this is one of those places <laughs> where at first reading, we might cringe a little bit. We think, boy, a good PR man might have helped Jesus out here. <laughs> Can you imagine a PR guy talking to Jesus? Okay, now listen, Jesus, we need to talk. You need to find some better metaphors. Don't you realize you're grossing people out? <laughs> Eat your flesh, drink your blood. Come on, Jesus, that's pretty disgusting. You're not going to attract people that way. <laughs> of course, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He did not need a PR man. <laughs> because Jesus wasn't particularly interested in trying to impress people or even to attract people. He was all about speaking and being truth. He is the truth. He always speaks the truth, and sometimes he speaks it in such a way that makes us scratch our heads a little bit and maybe even ask God, Lord, I don't understand. Help me understand what you're saying. I can almost imagine Jesus saying, you don't like the sound of what I'm saying? You need to examine yourself. <laughs> you need to figure out what I'm really talking about, and you need to figure out why you don't like it. <laughs> you need to think about this. <laughs> But at this point in time, even his closest disciples were not really happy with what he had just said. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Of course, Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. He knew he was going to give his body and his blood up on the cross for us and that we would have to receive his sacrifice in our place and that he would become our spiritual food, our spiritual nourishment. He would be the one who brings us spiritual life, true life, eternal life. So in verse 63, when he says, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to your spirit in life. He's saying, yes, I'm using some shocking metaphors to point you to a shocking spiritual truth. I'm going to die in your place. You're going to have to receive me, receive my body, receive my blood for your redemption. But there's some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. <laughs> and reading between the lines here a little bit, I, I guess I could get this wrong, but I, I could almost hear Peter say, Lord, Sometimes I have to confess we have a hard time understanding you, but we know who you are and we know you're our only hope. We're not going anywhere. We don't have anywhere else to go. We're going to hang with you. <laughs> and listen, guys, we, we shouldn't be too surprised when we read things in God's word that puzzle us. We don't understand it all. It's OK to be honest with him. You realize that, right? There's nothing wrong with reading a verse in the Bible and then just talking to God about it and saying, Lord, something, something like this, maybe sometimes, Lord, this verse just doesn't make much sense to me. I don't know why you said this, or I don't know why you said this the way you said it. I'd love to understand it better. But even though I don't understand it yet, I'm going to trust you. But those times are really wonderful times with the Lord because he, it gives him a chance to teach us a little bit more about his word and to teach us to trust things we don't understand sometimes, but, but sometimes it leads to some digging and some study and some thinking and some prayer that will help us have insights into His Word that we didn't see before. Okay, look, look back again at Exodus 16, verse 4 and 5. We looked at it and read it a few minutes ago. Notice in verse 4, He tells them that they're going to have to go out and gather it. Did you see that? They're going to have to go out and gather it. And it's going to take some pretty hard work on their part when you, when you think about this carefully. I mean, I can imagine somebody saying, Lord, i tell you what, if you're going to supernaturally provide food for us, 
why don't you just supernaturally fill up our pots so we don't have to go pick it up? And that would be really handy, Lord. <laughs> but God wanted them, and by the way, He wants us to learn to work, to exert energy, effort. It's part of our preparation for eternity, guys. We're to be disciplined. We're not to be lazy. It's part of the development of our character. God seems to me to be affirming here the danger of a handout without any requirements of work. Now, there was no way at that point in time they could have worked in, in the wilderness area where they worked had brought in enough food so they could have survived on it. So God knew that, and he provided the food for them, but he made them work. There's a danger of people getting dependent on handouts. I mean, there's a time to be generous and give people things, but when people begin to develop a habit of laziness and dependency, that's getting close, by the way, to the big mistake that the socialists make. You realize that, right? And, and the people who push for a bigger welfare state. They usually have good motives, but it's really bad reasoning. It's bad thinking. They don't understand people very well. And it's easy to demotivate people from hard work. Our flesh tends to be lazy. Our flesh tends to be undisciplined, left to itself. God says, I don't want you to be that way. I want you to learn to work. <laughs> he also says in verse 4 that he was doing it this way to test them. Do you see it there in the fourth line? He, he clarifies this test in the following verses. They were not allowed to accumulate it. It spoiled when they tried to do that. It was one day at a time, except for Friday. And then they were to gather enough for two days so they wouldn't have to gather it on the Sabbath day. Again, it's not. this was not easy work. They had to stoop down and pick it up off the ground over and over and over. And it came in little tiny pieces. Verse 31 says it was like coriander seed. That means it appeared in tiny little pieces. It would have been really hard work picking up enough of it to satisfy their hunger and nourish their bodies. God didn't make it easy for them. Verse 31 goes on to say that it was white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. In other words, God gave them something that tasted really good. Sounds like some kind of sweet bread. Verse 6, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out by the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? They might have argued, Oh, we're not grumbling against God. We're grumbling against you, Moses. But Moses doesn't let them get by with that. Moses is just following the Lord. They're grumbling against God, not Moses, no matter what they might claim. And I think one of the lessons that God keeps driving home and telling us about these things, all these awesome things that happened and then their reaction to it, you know, awesome mountaintop experiences with God seem to be very wonderful. And most of us really love those kind of experiences. But we've got to get it in our heads. We, we may think that's what gives us strength and gives us uh, whatever we need to carry on for a while longer, just an awesome mountaintop experience. That's wrong thinking. Those mountaintop experiences are not really our source of strength that, that will get us through the valleys that come later. When we're hurting, when we're suffering, or like they were, hungry maybe, when in the flesh, we're not sure how we're going to make it. We can't see how, the, how this is going to work out. The weaknesses of our flesh tend to drown out all those awesome mountaintop experiences we had in the past. I mean, that was then. This is now. This is reality, where we are right now. <laughs> but way too many Christians, I've known many of them through the years, feel like they have to have these mountaintop Usually it means for them a highly charged emotional experience from time to time just to kind of get them through life. I think it's a mistaken thinking because for one thing, it doesn't work. I mean, once they get in the valley, those mountaintop experiences seem like dim memories. We need God's word to give us strength. We need God's presence and God's promises, meditating on those promises he's made. Those kinds of things, his word, his truth right now, his Holy Spirit will get us through this present moment and get us through the valleys. What we have to teach ourselves is to depend on God, whether we're in the mountain or in the valley, whether our emotions high or whether they're low. We, we must not be led by our emotions. Our emotions are never the source of our strength. No, God is the source of our strength. Verse 8, And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, 
Because the Lord's heard you grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling's not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And if I'm reading that correctly, understanding it correctly, it, it appears that God's glory didn't always appear with the cloud. The cloud was there leading them. Maybe it eventually began to seem kind of ordinary to the Israelites. Yeah, there's a cloud up there that Moses is following, but, but just a feature of their journey they may not have fully appreciated or fully understood. But now God's using it to get their attention. His glory is shining through the cloud. Verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat. In the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? Well, they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. So God's emphasizing personal responsibility here. You see that? Everybody had to work. Everybody was responsible for gathering the manna he and his family would eat. God didn't set up a manna distribution center so that a few people could work really, really hard and get a whole bunch of manna and everybody else could go get it at the distribution center. No, 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 no. By the way, that omer he mentioned there, that's a measurement. Of course, some scholars say it may have been roughly two to three quarts or in weight, maybe two to three pounds. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. That didn't make sense to them. Over and over and over, things don't make sense to them. So they just go with their logic, their emotions or whatever. So some left part of it until the morning. And it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. That strong spirit of rebellion is in these people. Now, there's a, there's a tendency for all of us to have to fight that. There's a tendency for us to ignore things that God says if it doesn't make sense to our fallen way of thinking. Our world today is full of that. People like to figure out for themselves what seems right to them, what seems true to them, and then they just accept that even though there's no basis for it whatsoever. If we listen to God and do things God's way, eventually things turn out right. But there's this tendency for us to ignore what God said when it doesn't make sense to our fallen brains, our fallen minds. But it always amazes us every time we read through Exodus how determined they are to do things their way and to ignore God in spite of all the awesome things God has done, His miracles, His provision. No matter how awesome God works in their midst, they keep on rebelling against Him. They keep on focusing on themselves. They're determined to do it their way, very stubborn. And of course, ultimately, that's why God had to allow so many of them to simply die in the wilderness. They didn't get to the promised land. You remember that we're getting ahead of ourselves now, but these people were just incorrigibly self-centered and rebellious. Very, very sad. And of course, like I said, today we're surrounded by culture that's filled with people who are the same way, incorrigibly self-centered, rebellious. And what God says just doesn't make sense to their fallen sensibilities. And in a sense, they're going to die in the wilderness as well. They are dying in the wilderness all around us, all over the country. And of course, we want to do what we can to warn them, to tell them God's truth, but we can't force them to listen. It's just very, very sad. Any more than Moses can force them. Verse 21, morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. And on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, 
and all that's left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, <laughs> not going to be surprised at this, are you? Some of the people went out together, <laughs> but they found none. So God's in the process of training them to observe his Sabbath. God had told them clearly there would be no man on the Sabbath, but some felt like, eh, we better go check. <laughs> so, so once again, the world, our flesh, the devil, they keep convincing us that what God says just doesn't make much sense, and it's our nature to trust our fallen minds and our fallen way of thinking instead of trusting God himself. Foolish. Verse 28, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord's giving you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Now, chronologically, this is a little bit out of place. We're getting a little bit ahead because what he's talking about here is when he placed it before the testimony, it meant he put it before the tablets of the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. He was going to give it to him soon from this point. And, of course, that was kept in the ark in the most holy place of the tabernacle. Of course, the manna has already begun before the tabernacle gets constructed. It comes later. But the Lord's just wrapping up this discussion of manna by explaining some of the things that are going to happen later. And he wanted them to save a pot of manna for a memorial with the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. And it would serve as a perpetual reminder that God is the one who meets all of our needs. As he called himself to Abraham, he's Jehovah Jireh. He's our provider. Verse 35, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And then he tells us an omer is a tenth part of an ephah. And, and some scholars say an ephah was probably about the size of a bushel. Chapter 17, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Same story. How many verses is this? Now? I don't know. Next verse. <laughs> over and over again, God brings them to a time of testing. They're running out of water. In hindsight, it seems so logical that they would say, Okay, uh, don't know how God's going to do this, but unless he provides for us to have water somehow, supernaturally or however, Unless he supernaturally changes our bodies so we don't need water, we're all going to die pretty quickly of thirst. But God's in charge. He's brought us through all these other experiences. wonder what he's going to do this time. It's going to be interesting to see how God handles this. Lord, our eyes are on you. No, no, no. It's not their nature to trust God. So once again, another test reveals Moses' faithful spirit, his trusting spirit, and their unfaithful, untrusting spirits. Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. <laughs> and the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, some of us, I think I've talked about this before, but we may tend to picture this based on illustrations we've seen in maybe children's Bible story books or Sunday school material. And so we kind of picture Moses sometimes with the rod in his hand standing by a fairly large rock maybe, but there's a little spout of water coming out of it. 
But we have to remember, God's providing enough water for over 2 million people here. This is not a small thing. It's probably more like a huge spring of water bursting out, resulting maybe in a river flowing down with enough water for them all. In fact, it's clarified in Psalm 78. Look at this, verse 15. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. And we can see when it has to be that way if you're, if you're talking about giving two million people plenty to drink. Paul writes something to the Corinthians that sheds more light on this. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all ate and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So throughout their journey, God gave them physical water that came from physical rock to quench their physical thirst. But the real message is, as Paul writes here, the true rock is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is their spiritual rock. And wonderful, life-giving spiritual water gushes from Christ, our rock, to quench our spiritual thirst and to give us eternal life. A little later in Deuteronomy, when Moses is recounting these things, in chapter 32, God refers to himself as their rock five times. He calls himself the rock. Deuteronomy 32, 15, he calls himself the rock of their salvation. He's our rock. He was their rock. They got water from God. Nearly 40 years later, just before they made it to the promised land, in Numbers 20, the Bible tells us God repeated this miracle. Uh, he may have repeated it many times during the 40 years. Only this time, Moses lost his temper. God told him to speak to the rock, and instead Moses struck it twice. And then Moses shouted in anger to the people and drew attention to himself instead of to the Lord. And the Lord still gave water, but because of Moses' disobedience, when he knew better, God said, okay, you're not going into the promised land, Moses. That's all recorded in Numbers chapter 20. Jesus, interestingly, also said this, and it reminds us of this, this great miracle we're talking about right now. This is in John chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus is our rock and water of life gushes from our rock to give us life, to give us refreshment, to give us spiritual life. But he also says this about all who believe on him. Isn't that interesting? Out of his heart, he said, our hearts hearts that have all been hard as rocks, right? <laughs> Out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water too. He's choosing to offer us living water that gushes forth from him, our rock, like a river, and then to use us as his wells, his springs, so that his living water can flow out to a world that's dying from thirst from us. It's an amazing metaphor and what an amazing privilege it is. The rock is Christ, and Christ in us will cause rivers of living water to flow out from us. We're little rocks. <laughs> He's the big rock. He's the foundation stone. We're like Peter. We're little rocks built on him as the foundation. But it's all him. It's all from him. Even if it's through us, it's him through us. It ties in with the vine and the branches metaphor. Verse 7, he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So God's leading them, and as he leads them, he provides for them. Even though they complain a lot, they're following God as he leads. They had no choice. He's in charge. And suddenly Following God, he leads them into this situation where they're now facing an unprovoked attack from these descendants of Esau. 
It was a nasty attack. We read more about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you? And he did not fear God, so Amalek chased down the, the people who were lagging, who were weakest, and, and killed them. Verse 19, Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So God is going to bring that kind of judgment on them for their behavior. Verse 9, So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. This is the first mention of Joshua. First time we hear his name mentioned in the Bible. And, and Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Same word. The Greek translations of the Old Testament, you know, when they, when they had their Greek translations in, in Jesus' day, Joshua was translated Jesus. So here God's introducing another man who's going to be another man who will point us to Jesus in a little different way. But Joshua is also a type of Jesus. He's going to be the one who leads them into battle, eventually leads them into the promised land. Moses recognized that God would have to be the source of this victory, just as he'd been the source of all their other victories. So he did not say, I will stand with my staff in my hand. He said, I will stand with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. We really don't know who Hur was. Josephus says there was a Jewish tradition anyway that Hur was the husband of Miriam. That would have made him Moses' brother-in-law, but we really don't know that to be true. Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed, but Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. This seems to be a clear picture of the power of prayer. It's very common in Bible days for men to pray with uplifted hands. You remember Paul wrote that to Timothy. He said, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And here's the lesson, guys. Victories are won as God's people continue to pray with persistence. And when we get weary of praying, when we decide it doesn't seem to be working like we think it should and we kind of let it go, the enemy starts making huge progress. That's what happened. Sometimes it's a little bit hard for us to believe that. We tend to be like those stubborn Israelites. We tend to think, hey, God's got it all handled. He can do things without me praying. I'm sure it'll be fine if I just kind of throw out a prayer every now and then, but it's really not necessary that I do the hard work of praying. It just takes too much time. But all the way through Scripture, again, whether we understand it or not, whether it makes sense to us or not, the message is consistent. Prayer is an essential part of getting God's work done. Over and over, Ephesians chapter 6, he describes the armor. You know, we've talked about this before, that we have to take up our, for our spiritual warfare. And then God says after, if he says all that, he says, praying always. See, that's, that's the last thing on the list there. Don't forget this. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. It's important to have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of peace, all those weapons. But he said, don't forget, you've got to pray throughout the whole process. First Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. It's a command. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not to lose heart, not to give up, not quit. It's because the answers seem to be a long time coming. Here's another one. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. It's a command. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. It's a command. Persevering, persistent, consistent, ongoing prayer. The Lord just never relents about this. He commands us over and over and over. You must be a people of prayer. 
And if you've, if you've gotten serious about it, you'll know what I'm about to say next is true. We tend to think, well, prayer ought to be kind of easy. And maybe from time to time, it's kind of easy to turn our minds to God and say a few words. But serious, effective prayer is a lot harder than we tend to think. And the enemy's always there whispering, this is pointless, you know. God's not listening to you. This is a waste of time. Maybe sometimes he whispers like this, yeah, you need to pray, but not right now. You've got too many urgent things that have to be taken care of. The prayer can wait. That, that, that can come later. You know, you've got, you've got things to do right now. <laughs> have you fought those battles? I'm sure you have. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. And recited in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. This is another one of those compound names God has given himself. This one is Jehovah Nisi. God our banner. God our standard of victory. The point is, even though God requires that we pray, and that we do battle against the enemy. He commands us to fight. He commands us to resist the devil. He wants us to know ultimately he is our banner of victory. He is the one who will give us the victory. We can't win it in ourselves. David mentions this in Psalm 60. He said, you set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. Stop and think about this. Isaiah wrote, in that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal. He's talking about Jesus. And the word signal, many translations translate it banner. Same, same idea, same word. Who shall stand as a banner for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. He's our banner. He's our standard of victory. Years ago, Vicki and I were members at Prestonwood Church in Dallas for several years and before we moved to Tennessee, of course. And and they used to have a very powerful banner ministry. I don't know if they still do it or not. But it was pretty incredible. The women of the church would make these huge, majestic, beautiful banners that portrayed the character of Jesus. And then in the service, men would very solemnly carry them into the worship service. It makes me weep because I'm picturing it <laughs> as the choir and orchestra. Of course, they had a huge orchestra and a huge choir, huge mega church. But they would play and sing, lift high the Lord our banner. Have you heard that song? I'm going to see if I can make this play for you here at the end. But the words are, lift high the Lord our banner. Lift high the Lord Jesus King. Lift high the Lord our banner. Lift high your praise to him sing. For he is wonderful. For he reigns on high. For he is marvelous. The Lord draweth nigh. Listen to this. Try to picture it. If you happen to be listening to this Bible study as an audio podcast, I just wanted to give you a heads up here that in the video version of this study, you can see examples of some of the banners that might be used with this song in a worship service.
Anyway, that experience made Vicky and me weep every time we experienced it. We need to stop here. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for teaching us things about you that we need to get into our heads and into our minds and into our hearts. And remember, Lord, we forget so quickly. And Lord, you know us. We tend to get our focus on circumstances. We tend to get our focus on things that are happening around us. And we tend to get our focus off of you. We want to learn to do better. We want to keep our focus on you. We thank you that you are Jehovah Nissi, our banner of victory. We thank you that when, even though you require us to fight and when we're involved in the hottest time of our spiritual warfare, you are still our Jehovah Nissi, our banner of victory. And we can look to you and draw the strength we need to stand firm and stay in the battle until you say it's over when we draw our last breath. Thank you, Lord, for using this history of Moses and the Israelites to teach us wonderful truth about you and truth about us that we need to learn and remember. So help us to get these things internalized and help us to keep our focus on you. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.